0: You have your Bible today? Hold it up in the air if you came dressed for church today. That's the way you dress for church here, is you bring your Bible. And thank you, boy. That's a great sight. John chapter number 20 today. The Gospel of John, chapter number 20. John 20. Before I read the passage and ask you to stand, I've been doing a series. To myself, I've just called it the Gospel series. I haven't made a big deal about it publicly, just the Gospel of Salvation. And based upon the idea that Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so I began the series by, I preached a sermon on Does God Love Me? based upon John chapter 3 and verse 16. If you miss these, you can get them on. Uh, the internet on youtube or on our website they're all there and i would like for you to get them because here's here was i'm not only preaching to people who need to understand salvation but i i want to preach to christians to help you be able to very very articulately clearly simply witness to other people and if you don't clearly understand something yourself, it's hard to explain it to someone else and to make it clear, isn't it? And so I hope you're taking some notes here. I began, does God love me? John three sixteen, the love of God. And then we went to our need, the sin issue. And I talked about the nature of sin. What is sin? And God's view of our sin, the greatest need that we have. Then there was a message on repentance. What is repentance? There's so much confusion about repentance. So many people have made repentance a work. And they've added it to the gospel as an essential of salvation, almost like you have to do another step. And of course, I explained to you that repentance is simply a change of mind about Christ, about the gospel, about your sin. And then when is the gospel or when is the good news the good news? What is it that makes the gospel good news? And then today, I want to preach to you on this subject. What does it mean to believe? Because you may say, oh, I understand all there is to know about believe. Well, listen carefully. Maybe I can add to your knowledge and help you a little bit with it because I think this area of believing tends to have a lot of confusion not only with unsaved people, but with God's people as well. So if you would stand with me and take your Bible and look with me in John chapter twenty, and we begin in verse thirty. John twenty thirty. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did or said. It tells us what God wants us to know that Jesus did or said. And then in verse 31, these are written, the things that John records are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Read it with me yourself. Everybody allowed together a great choir, if you will, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Thank you, and you may be seated. The gospel is concerned totally and only with what God Has done for man the gospel is not about you the gospel is not about me it's not about human kind of any kind the gospel is exclusively about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us but then that leaves us with a question if the gospel is entirely about Jesus Christ then what is man to do What is man to do? And you will never find a greater passage of Scripture than this passage right here, particularly verse number 31. Because John gives us his purpose in writing. It's the only book in the Bible where the purpose of the author is stated very clearly. This is the reason I wrote this book for you. And so listen to what he says his purpose is. He said his purpose is that you might believe, that you might believe. And so what is man to do to be saved? Man is to believe. But make sure you understand that word because it's not the same in the Bible as people use it in ordinary conversation. That you might believe, but believe what? What do you have to believe? Now in verse 31, note what John wrote here. He said that you might, these are written that you might believe, number one, that Christ, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Stop there. That Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. The Messiah was a prophesied man that would come in history that would redeem and save the Jewish people. So John says, I write this that you might believe that Jesus, the one I've been associating with now for three and a half years, he is the promised Messiah. That means that he is a man that has to do with his humanity. And so in one verse, John tells us the two important things about Jesus, that he's both a man and that he's God. And so John says, I wrote my book that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the prophesied one who would come. And then, secondly, he says in verse 31, also I wrote it that you might believe that he is the Son of God, and that's his deity. And so, in one little phrase, you have the teaching of both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ, the two most important things about Jesus he is man perfect man and he is god absolute god in the flesh deity now the result he says in verse 31 is that if you believe this you might have life through his name and he makes salvation so so simple and so very clear that you might have life through his name So you need to understand everything you can about this one word, believe. What does it mean to believe? You see, if you listen to people and you listen to conversation at dinner tables and water coolers and hallways and standing around the foyer of the church even... You might get very confused because there's a lot of terms floating around today that people use. And to me, they don't clarify what it means to believe. They confuse people as to what it it means to believe. Let me give you a couple of them. I hear people say, well, you need to invite Christ into your heart. You mean into this pump that's in my chest? What does that mean? Never tell a child to invite Christ Jesus into their heart. They don't know what heart means. A heart to them is this organ in the body. It's confusing, you see. Other people say, well, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life to be saved. That's what it means to believe. Now, that's not what the Bible says. That contradicts what the Bible says, in fact. And somebody else says, well, you need to surrender your life to Christ. Well, what do you mean surrender? I'll put my hands up? What do you mean surrender? How do I do that? You see, and so instead of using Bible terminology, we add a lot of these phrases, thinking we're clarifying things, and when in reality we're confusing things. Somebody else says, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Did not the Bible say that? It does say that, but it wasn't speaking to unsaved people. It was talking to the disciples, that they were to take a further step in their discipleship, their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody else says, well, you trust Christ, but you've got to be baptized. Somebody else says, well, if you're saved, you're going to live like it. I wish that were true. It'd make my job a lot easier. I'll tell you that. I wish Christian people would live like Christians. By and large, they don't. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, I'd like to write to you as mature people, but I can't. You're so carnal, you're a bunch of spiritual babies. It's been like that ever since. So we really need to watch our terminology. And so I thought I would speak on what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Charles Spurgeon, I guess the greatest of all the, certainly of all the Baptist preachers, maybe of any genre of preachers. He said this, and I'm going to read this to you exactly as he said it. Oh, the many times before I was saved that I had wished the preacher would tell me something to do that I might be saved. Gladly would I have done it. If it had been possible, he said, if he had said, take off your shoes and stockings and run to John O'Groats. I looked that up. What's John O'Groats? It's interesting. He was preaching in London. John O'Groats is at the very tip of Scotland. It's the northernmost community in the entire British Empire. It was over 500 miles from London to John O'Groats. That's the name of the town, the community there. Oh, that I wish that the preacher would tell me what I must do. If he had said, Take off your shoes and stockings and run to John O'Groats, I would not even have gone home first. I would have started that very night that I might win salvation. How often have I thought that if he would have said, bear your back to the scourge and take 50 lashes, I would have said, here I am, come with your whip and beat me as hard as you please so long as I can obtain peace and rest and get rid of my sin. Yet that simplest of all matters, believing in Christ crucified, accepting his finished salvation, being nothing, and letting him be everything, doing nothing, but trusting to what he has done, I could not get hold of it all," end of quote. And so, we go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and a unique book because it was written to tell people how to be saved and how to believe in Jesus Christ. So listen closely to me for the rest of my time because I want every person who hears this message to clearly understand what it means to believe. Number one with me, if you will, if you're taking notes, this would be the first point. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes an offer, an offer of eternal life. And you go through this book, and over and over, Jesus is offering people life, eternal life. Now, I go out shopping somewhere, and I walk through a store, and there are items on the the shelves there. Perhaps I'm in a grocery store. Perhaps I'm at uh, a hardware store. Just think of any kind you want to think of. Every item there has a price tag on it. And every single price tag is an offer to sell me that item. The store has made a legal, official offer. And so here's an item, let's say a loaf of bread, and for whatever price it is, $3 and whatever it is, or $4 maybe now, you can have that that loaf of bread. You can go up to the counter. You could even bargain with the proprietor. You could say, Well, I'll give you three dollars. He might sell it to you, he might not. Or you could say that's just too much and I'll walk away. I don't believe, I don't believe I want that bread for that price. I'm not gonna give that for. But it's an offer. And if you come with the money, now that he's made a bona fide offer, he's got to sell you that loaf of bread. You have publicly proclaimed, he has publicly proclaimed what he would do it is an offer in the light of that in the gospel of john our lord jesus christ over and over comes to people comes to you comes to me and he makes this offer to us and the offer is about eternal life look at it right here in verse 30 you don't or 31 you don't even have to turn the page these are written that you might believe and believing you might have life through his name that's an offer the word life in the bible is zoe z-o-e and john uses that word 36 times in just this one book of the bible 36 times 28 of those times it's not referring to physical life it's referring to eternal life over and over and over he's making this offer and, listen to me, Christ made it plain to the people when he made that offer that he was offering them something they didn't have. And so he comes and speaks to Nicodemus one night. Nicodemus is an affluent man. He's wealthy. He's a very moral man. He, is, he has a lot of prestige. He's a member of the council. It's like he was an elected high official at that time. Nicodemus is among the elites, if you will, in Israel at that time. But Jesus offers him eternal life because the elites need eternal life. Everybody needs eternal life. And then the next chapter, he goes to the woman at the well. And she comes to him. She's a woman of another race, a minority group. But minority groups need eternal life. And she is a woman who worships in a different way. She's of another religion. The people who are of another religion need Jesus Christ and they need the life that he offers to them. And then two or three chapters later, they bring to him a woman, they've caught her in the very act of adultery. And what does Jesus do? He offers her eternal life moral people need eternal life, but immoral people need eternal life as well. Every single person is in need of this offer that Jesus Christ made. He offered something that people don't have. And over and over, he said, without me, you won't have this life. But if you accept Me, if you believe in me, you will have life that never ends. 28 times he says it in the gospel. I'll run through some of them with you. John 1 and 4, it says, In him was life, the light of all the world, the life of the world. In John 5 and 40, he said, You will not come to me that you might have life. The reason people don't have life, the only reason, They've rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord. John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, he stands in a graveyard and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He makes this offer to the crowd of people there in the graveyard. John 14 and six, I am the life, he said. And in 1 John 5 and 12, that John later wrote after he'd written this this little of the gospel here, he says, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, this is just the way it is. It's this clear, it's this plain. You either have Jesus Christ in your life and you have eternal life, or you don't have Jesus Christ and you don't have life. And so here you are let my bible represent you and here's jesus christ and if you have accepted jesus christ and he's in your life you have eternal life but if you have don't have jesus christ you don't have life it's that simple and over and over and over he makes that point over and over and over the lord jesus makes an offer of eternal life now number two with me jesus christ himself is the one who extends that offer Jesus himself is the one who makes the offer. And why do I emphasize that? Turn back with me to chapter 4. He's talking to the woman at the well. And in chapter 4, in verse number 10, he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that said to you, give me a drink, would you, you would have asked him, ask of him, and he would have given you living water. You see, makes the offer again to the woman in that way. If you knew the gift of God, if you really knew who I am that's offering you this gift, boy, you would accept it in a heartbeat. Notice here that in the book of John, and over and over and over you will see this, Christ is always the object of the word believe. Believe is a verb. And what is the object? The object always is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that the verb is modifying that it speaks about. And so who is he? Verse 31, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the human one who would come, the man who would come and bring salvation to his people. Who is he? He is the son of God. He is God in human flesh. He is the God-man, and it's the God-man himself who makes the offer of eternal life to those who believe. Notice with me number three, his deity is the basis of his offer. His deity is the basis of his offer. How could he offer people eternal life? If I offered people eternal life, you would kind of roll your eyes. Who does he think he is anyhow? Who does he think he is? And you would say that about any human being who made an offer. I'm going to give you life that is never going to end. No matter how much I would pay, no matter who I was around, there's no one on this earth who could give you the guarantee of having eternal life in your soul. So, what gives Jesus the authority to do that? Well, his deity. He's the Son of God. He is the only one who has the authority to offer people this wonderful gift of eternal life. In Matthew 28, verse number 18, right before he gave us the Great Commission, he said, I have all power. I have all authority. Jesus Christ, the one who created the universe, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is the one who. Who is offering you this, this wonderful offer that if you believe in me, you will, you will have eternal life? And he proved his deity to us in two ways. If you have any questions about the deity of Christ, number one, he proved his deity by the signs that he did. Go back to your verse here, verse 30 of chapter 21, or, or chapter 20. Many other signs. And that means miracles, same word as miracles, just translated signs here. Many other signs or miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which he said, I don't have time to write them down. Now, the book of John has the fewest miracles recorded of any of the the gospels. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have scores of miracles listed. John didn't list a lot of miracles. He selected only seven miracles, seven miracles. And he said, I'm presenting these seven because these seven specifically show the various points of view that you need to understand in order to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And so he proved his his deity through working miracles. No one else Can do what Jesus did. No one else has ever raised anybody from the dead since only him and a couple of the apostles, the only ones recorded. No one else had the power to just walk through a crowd and speak to the people and lepers would be cleansed and blind eyes would be opened. In fact, look in the very last verse of the book of John, chapter 21 and verse 25. And it says that many other signs or things that Jesus did, the which if they would all be written, every one, I suppose, even the world itself could not contain the books. In other words, Jesus all day, every day was walking among the people and doing miraculous things. And so much so, John said, I don't know if the whole world could contain the books. Now, obviously, that's a, a, a way of a figure of speech, But the point is, Jesus Christ was the miracle-working savior and his miracles prove he was in fact God. They prove his deity. But there's another proof of his deity and that is his messages, his messages. What he said and so the people went to hear him and they came away and said, never man spake like this man. And he revealed to us truth that nobody in history before or since has ever been able to reveal truth like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why your Bible today, 4,000 years old, parts of this book, and yet it's the best-selling book on the planet. Isn't that amazing? And it's because people want to know what Jesus said, what Jesus, the Son of God, said. And so he proved his deity in two ways. By his words, and by his miracles. And it is the Son of God, deity himself, that makes the offer of salvation to us. And number four, his death and his resurrection then validate or prove his claims. His death and his resurrection validate. They prove their evidence that what he said was in fact true. Oh, my, this is such a great, powerful teaching. You see, when Jesus died, now listen carefully. You you must understand this. When Jesus Christ died, his death, he was the only person in history who could have died and paid for the sins of the world because he was the only one who was sinless. They couldn't have sung a better song for my point here. Then he was the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. He was pure and spotless and holy, separate from sin, the Bible says. The only sinless person in all of history because he was virgin born. God was the one who gave him life and his mother's womb. His death was then like the death of a perfect man and he paid for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2 is such a wonderful verse. It says he is the propitiation, the sacrifice for the sins of the world, for the sins of the whole world. You and I can't imagine the volume, the quantity of the sins of the whole world Every evil deed, every evil thought, every word that's sinful piled up higher than the space itself, the sins of humanity. But Jesus Christ, the perfect, pure Lamb of God, paid for the sins of the whole world. And so when he dropped his head and said it's finished on the cross, sin had been paid for. The penalty for my sin and yours have been paid. And then he goes in the ground, in the tomb for three days, he's buried. And then he comes out, he resurrects. And here's the power. The cross, now listen to me, don't miss this. The cross is where he paid for your sins. But in the resurrection, he proved he was God by having power to conquer death. You get how important that is? He paid for our sins. The resurrection had nothing to do with him paying for our sins. He shed his blood to pay for our sins. But then he proved he was who he said he was, that he was God by resurrecting from the dead by showing his power over death itself. What a man, what a person, what a being. That's why we gather and worship him. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of your loyalty. He should have first place in my heart after what he did for me. Nobody else has given me eternal life. I I performed a funeral yesterday. I stand in the middle of Mount Hope, the city of the dead. And I look around me as far as I can see, tombstones and Tombstones and tombstones and, and signs of death. And it's the end of all of us. All of us are, are going to end up in one of those cities of the dead. And I thought, what a morbid, hopeless situation, except there came from heaven 2,000 years ago. One who was miraculous in every part of his being sent from God through the virgin birth, became a little baby, went through the womb of his mother, was born and lived a perfect life for 33 years and then paid for my sins. And yeah, I'm going to end up in Mount Hope or the other one or somewhere in a hole in the ground one of these days, but you know what? I won't be there forever forever because my Savior conquered death that day when he walked out of that tomb. He proved that as God, he had power over death. And he said, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not an event. The resurrection is a man. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. All right. So he makes this an offer. As God, he has the right to make the offer. He makes the offer, and the offer is, you can have eternal life. I'm walking through the store. There's the price tag. I want an item. I have to pay for it. I accept the offer by paying for it. I don't have to pay for this one, thank God. Amen? Because Jesus paid for my eternal life already. How wonderful. Jesus paid it all, we say. And so how do I accept the offer? I accept it by believing and putting my trust in faith that what he did paid for my item, the item being eternal life. In this case, Jesus paid it for me, and I accept the offer by putting my faith in him. You might want to make a note there somewhere in your Bible. John uses the word believe 90 times plus. I think it's more like 98 or nine, but over 90 times. John uses the simple word believe over 90 times. And every time he uses it practically, he's referring to Jesus Christ, he's the object. Now, listen to me, because I think there's a lot of confusion. I, I listen to people carefully. And I can tell, it's foggy in their minds sometimes, even people who I think are saved people. Because the way we use the word believe is not the same way that John used the word believe. Do you hear me? The way we use the word today in casual American conversation is not exactly the same thing as John used the same way that John used it. You see, we use it and 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 we put, we use it meaning I hope, I believe something, I hope something. For example, I say, I believe I can be there by about five o'clock. See, I'm just hoping I'll get there at five o'clock. It might be a wreck, it might be a traffic jam, I might get held up. I'm hoping, and I use the word believe when I really mean I'm hoping I'll be there by five o'clock, but I believe I'll be there at five. So there's an there's a hint of doubt in that. Then we use it in another way. We speculate. And we, instead of speaking with assurance, it's a speculative type of thing. And so we say, I believe tomorrow's going to be a pretty day. I don't know that. Uh, I'm speculating. It might rain tomorrow. It might be a pretty day. I might be right. but. It doesn't have the certainty that the Bible uses. In the Bible, the way the word is used, it contains two major ideas. One, to believe is to trust. I've said this to you a lot. I say it all the time. I will say it all the time as long as I'm preaching. The word believe means simply to fully trust, to cast yourself upon whatever it is that you're trusting in be it a person or a place or a thing. You're casting yourself upon something. You're throwing yourself upon it. I was looking again uh, at some information about the Titanic, and everybody's familiar with the Titanic and movies and stories about it, books written on it and so on. And when the Titanic was sinking, they started trying to load people into the lifeboats. And then the writer described it. He said, what a tragic thing that many of the lifeboats left the Titanic half empty, three quarters full. People wouldn't get in the lifeboat. He he, he interviewed, he said, why would they not get into the lifeboat? Many of them, it was women only and the men had to stay behind and and the women were afraid to be separated from their husbands. In other cases, it was different kinds of fear. It was fear that the lifeboat itself would sink and it wouldn't make it. To get in the lifeboat, you had to leave the, the main ship and you had to trust. You had to cast yourself into that lifeboat. You had to put your life in the hands of the lifeboat. That's exactly what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. It means you cut off trust in everything that you've trusted in previous to that, church memberships and baptisms and good works and keeping the law and all those things. And you you cast yourself into the lifeboat, Jesus the lifeboat. And then the second thing the Bible means, two major ideas in the word believe. One is to trust, and the other is to be thoroughly convinced, to really be convinced that this is the way. You're you're, You're not waffling on this. I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the Son of God. I believe he died for my sins, and that was adequate payment for my sin. And so... Our definition of faith really comes into view there. Where we define faith as I hear the word, like you're doing right now. You believe the word. Then you act on the word. You get in the boat. You make a commitment to Christ. You leave the rest to Him. You trust Him from then on. So believing in the Bible is trusting, and it's an act of commitment where I totally am convinced that I commit myself to Christ you see there's a big difference and here's what I'm afraid happens I'm afraid that people know a lot about Jesus Christ but the Bible never uses the word about him in terms of salvation Do you know what it talks about believe in him believe on him The devil believes about him. I am told in scripture to believe on him, in him. That's salvation the Bible way. And that faith has three different elements. Knowledge, I have to know something about him. That's why people have to know. We have to to give them good information so they can trust. You can't trust without knowledge. Secondly, there's emotion. I'm convicted of my sins, and I become convinced. I change my mind about the way I'm going about Jesus, repentance, and I trust him. And thirdly, then, there's my will. I make a decision. I'm getting in that boat. I'm getting in the boat of believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for my sins and that he's a living savior. And our heads are bowed.